medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. Chinese medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Chiological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of Chinese medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese medicine. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. 
You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. My guest today is Jason Robertson. Jason is an acupuncturist who lives in Seattle, Washington. He's on the staff over at Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine, I think is the name now. And he is the author of a fantastic book on channel palpation and uh, channel theory. He studied a long time with Dr. Wang Jui. Our show today is primarily around channel palpation and uh, the work of Wang Jui. Jason, welcome to Geological. Hey, Michael. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Good to hear your voice again. You and I met right in the kind of formative era when I was first really doing a lot of my research with Dr. Wang in Beijing and uh, spent a lot of time together in Beijing, you and I, and also you and Dr. Wang and I spent a lot of time together. Yeah, great to have you do the interview. It's amazing. Here we are years, decades almost later talking about Dr. Wang, who unfortunately recently passed away. I, You know, our time in Beijing... It was a lot of fun there in the early part of the century. Yeah, we were there before the extra 12 subway lines were built and before microbreweries in the hutongs. Oh, my God. Microbreweries in the hutong. Who would have ever thought we'd see those? Well, they happened and then recently they all got shut down. So, it, you know, things continue to evolve in that, you know, syncretic way that Beijing changes every two or three days. <laughs> it's so true. You know, one of the things I love about your book, we'll get more into it later, but, you know, one of the things that's great about your book, it's not just that it's full of great information, which it is, but you give these glimpses, these snapshots of what Beijing was like back in those days, because, you know, you you know, you were just hanging, you know, and sometimes you take a day off and go for a walk in the hutong, and, you know, that was always good for an adventure. You know, it was really that spirit of Dr. Wong that, that got me in that frame of mind because he was such an old Beijinger himself that uh, he got me interested in getting out into the small alleys and walking around and the stories and the history of the city of which, you know, he really was a part. And as you might remember, even his, his grandfather had been an imperial guard with the Qing dynasty. You know, he was born in, I think it was called like Elephant Nose Hutong. I can't remember even the name. I just remember translating it which is, you know, right near Chaoyang area in Beijing. And yeah, so he, he just grew up steeped in that history of the city. And so it was perfect to have him as a guide for Chinese medicine, but also the history of that, of that city before it all started changing. But when he was born there, it was like 400,000 people. What's the population, he said. 400,000, not even a million. Not even a million, no. Holy and there was smokes. still a wall around the city. The first ring road was a wall, you know, an actual medieval wall too. That's unfathomable from the Beijing that you would see today. Hey, for those listening, actually connected to what we're saying right now, and you would love this as well. There's a book called Midnight in Peking 
And it's a fascinating book about 1937. There was this interesting crime committed, a murder in Beijing. And it was the very year Dr. Wang was born. And it was the very year Dr. Wang's family had to evacuate Beijing. And it really brings to life exactly what it was like in the city in, the, in that really turbulent era at the end of the Republican era and the you know, beginning of the communist era, and then what it was like to be a foreigner there then. And I, I mean, it was really one of my favorite books in the last couple of years. And it was, it was so much the time Dr. Wong you know, started in, too. So for those interested in history of Beijing, if we, I could spend the whole time talking about that subject. But I highly recommend that book. And if I got the name wrong, we can put it up on your podcast later. You know what? I will check it out and put it up on the show notes page. Such a, a page turner mystery. <laughs> but a true story. All of it true. Yeah. Anyway, that may not be what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Dr. Wong's work. And I love hearing you talk about how part of what your study was with him was getting out and getting a feel for things. And feel for things is a good way to put it, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, a little, little play on words there. Remind me again how you first met Dr. Wong and how you ended up in Beijing basically being his apprentice. It began with me as a student of Chinese medicine at the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco. I've been living, uh, as you lived for some years also, in Taiwan, and I'd lived in Taiwan for six years and had been studying Chinese there and went to the Taichung Zhongyaodashia, the, the school in Taichung, to see if they would let foreigners, you know, study there. And when I went there, when I was living in Taiwan, they said, no, you know, you can come study all you want, but we're not giving you a degree. So of all things, some of you listening may remember, there were a couple of years where ACTCM in San Francisco had a Chinese language program. And so I found this program, moved from Taipei, of all things, to San Francisco to study Chinese medicine in Chinese. <laughs> That's hilarious. That was how I ended up, you know, back in the U.S. after living, you know, for years in Taiwan. And one of my teachers in that program, she was an old uh, Beijing doctor. She'd been in the U.S. for a while, but she'd studied at the Beijing Zhongyaodashia, where Dr. Wang graduated from yeah, as well. First graduating class. First graduating class. Yeah, 1962, he graduated. And she probably graduated not too long after, probably in the late 60s. And she's like, oh, there's this guy speaking down at Santa Cruz. He's down in Santa Cruz at, what is it, Five Branches that, was, that still is down there, I think, in Santa Cruz. And she's like, you've got to go. He's speaking this weekend. You've got to go hear him speak. So this was in 1998. I went down to Santa Cruz and uh, saw Dr. Wong speak. You know, it's like one of those weekend classes you pay for. And a couple of friends and I who all studied together all went down there. A guy named C.T. Holman. He's written an interesting book recently about trauma in Chinese medicine. Another yeah, man. Guy. In fact, he's, he's going to be on the show. You listeners, listen in. C.T. Holman coming up real soon. Well, he was there that first day I met Dr. Wong. And so is another guy from Israel named Amos Ziv. And Amos would be another really interesting guy to interview, by the way. He works in cardiology in Israel. Anyway, the three of us went down there and we're like, whoa, this is fascinating. And the thing that fascinated us, and those of you who might have read Dr. Wong's book, the thing that's fascinating about him is that he takes ideas from Chinese medicine that we see maybe in the Machiochia book or in other textbooks or that you hear your teacher say, and he just takes that idea and runs with it and deepens it and broadens it. It's not like anything he says is completely never heard of new. He takes things that were kind of gray and then clarifies them and deepens them and connects them in a way. So he had this great ability to take lots of complex ideas from different parts of the history of Chinese medicine and kind of create a way of thinking. So palpation is one of the big things we're talking about. But I think 
one of his great gifts to Chinese medicine really was this way of seeing that he brought to Chinese medicine, a kind of flexible moving system that allows you to integrate new information or, or deal with difficult cases. And so that was the kind of thing he was talking about that day in Santa Cruz is, you know, he began with that, the, the kind of famous lectures that I think are a big part of the book he and I worked on, the Liu Jing Qi Hua, the six channel Qi transformation lectures that I'm sure you've heard also, Michael, from him. Yes. You know, he talks about Tain and talks about the nature of Tain and the nature of the spleen, the nature of the lung, and most importantly, how together the lung and spleen are kind of one system. And so we were just blown away by that because, you know, we'd been talking about the, the lung channel and the spleen channel as if they were separate, discrete things. And he was linking those together into systems. That's what really hooked me. I didn't study with him, you know, right at that time. I definitely met him. We talked. We had a great time that weekend. We are there for two days. Then I went back, graduated, and actually uh, moved to Chengdu in Sichuan province and studied there for a year, studying herbal medicine. Went back to Kentucky, where I'm from, and practiced there for a couple of years. Got married, and my wife and I are like, "All right, let's uh, let's get out of Kentucky and go somewhere else and see what's what you know, just kind of shake it up in our first year of marriage." And we picked Beijing, kind of out of a hat, really. And as we were preparing to go there, I called that teacher again, Dr. Wu in San Francisco and said, hey, that guy, Dr. Wong, do you have his number? And she's like, yeah, I got his number. And so we, we got to Beijing and I didn't even contact him until we got there, you know, called up Dr. Wong and, and his wife answered the phone, Shermu, as she's called, uh, you know, <laughs> she, uh, she said, yeah, Deng Yixia, Deng Yixia. Deng Yixia. You know, there's like, yeah, there's this kind of like fumbling. And then you hear Dr. Wong's voice, which was this kind of booming, deep voice. He was a pretty big guy. Yeah. Like, wait, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, well, sure any Bujita wall. You know, you don't remember me, but here I am, this guy you met in California. You know, he's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, oh, oh. you know, he always would pretend he knew you, even if he couldn't remember you, because I think, <laughs> you know, he met so many foreigners in the decades he taught abroad as well as in China. I was still thinking I would be looking up Dr. Wong so that I could get his contacts to get some great people to study herbal medicine with, which is what I'd done in Chengdu and I kind of fancied that I'd be specializing in herbal medicine for gynecology and knew that he had so many good contacts. And he's like, well, come to my clinic, you know, uh, on Thursday. And he gave me the address. And actually, no, what I, we did first was he's like, look, meet me at Hohai. And you remember Hohai. Oh, yeah. Hohai. Would you go to like a tea house or a place to drink? Well, the only thing, you know, I'd been in Beijing at that point for like two or three weeks. So I didn't know much. But the only thing I knew was uh, Song Qingling's house. Aha. Uh -huh, yeah, right. The Song family, the famous sisters, one who married Chiang Kai-shek, one who married Sun Yat-sen. And the other who was some big official in a communist party. Man, talk about family dynamics. There's another great book, by the way, that's Song Dynasty, S-O-N-G. I read it before I went to Taiwan. It totally set the stage for, oh my God, what am I getting into? Isn't that a great book? Yeah, by great Sterling book. Seagrave. I yep. don't remember his name. Song Dynasty. It's on the show notes page, folks. Nope. If, if you want to get a little glimpse of history, this one's great. Yeah, it's very readable, full of all kinds of interesting gossip about early 20th century and mid 20th century Chinese history. Good book. So we both were and I was influenced on that in that I remembered that I was kind of still fascinated by that story. So I was like, all right, Song Qingling's house is near Hohai and it's still preserved and you can still go into it. It looks like a house frozen in the 1980s. And anyway, I was like, meet me in front of Song Qingling's house. I was standing in front of Song Qingling's house. Dr. Wong pulls up in a little tiny white, little boxy tin can car that he had. And uh, we went and had, uh, <laughs> went and had noodles. 
Noodles. And, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Of course we had noodles. We had yeah. lots of noodles together. And and he's like, yeah, what are you here for? And I was like, well, I want to study gynecology and I'm interested in herbs. He's like, oh, I know some people. And he's like, well, but you could also just come to my clinic, uh, you know, on Thursday. And then I was like, all right, I figured that's, you know, a way to get in and get to know him and maybe see what contacts he had. I'll have to admit, I wasn't necessarily interested in Dr. Wong at that moment. But then, I mean, I liked him very much as a person and I loved the lectures he'd given, but I didn't know that what he had to give to be yeah, honest. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't know your destiny was looking you in the face. I didn't know it. And, no. and so uh, I went to the clinic and he had just retired like the year before. So my timing was perfect. And that, you know, just the year before he quit working in, in very busy clinics and was kind of trying to figure out the next step. So he was working in a, a private clinic of someone he knew and he had like four patients a, a day or morning or something. And so we would see a patient and then he'd pull out this famous book that said BG Bun on the front. It just said notebook, you know, in Chinese on the front, this old brown book that that has uh, been secured by his wife now. And he would open it up and start giving lectures from it. And then I was like, whoa, this is really good. And I started to, of course, write it down. And then I started recording it. And it was probably a few months into that where I met you, Michael, through Andy Ellis. And then that just set off a year there studying with Dr. Wong, recording his lectures, and then reaching out and contacting other uh, former teachers like Yafim Gemgonashvili, who was a teacher of mine in San Francisco. And he's like, I was like, you got to come study with this guy. And he uh, then got groups of students from the United States to come, and we would arrange entire two-week courses where Dr. Wong would speak all day. I mean, he was yeah, really— I remember attending some of those. I mean, I was there to study Chinese medicine, of course, primarily herbal, but also looking for acupuncture. And one of my great disappointments in studying acupuncture in, in a place like Beijing was how much incredibly poor acupuncture I was running into. Some of it was, you know, it was just the, the fact that the, a lot of the acupuncturists are forced to see so many people. But yeah, Dr. Wong was, you know, that was one of his great background themes in his life was that the, the state of acupuncture in China has fallen and the types of diseases we think we can treat with acupuncture has become radically narrowed in, you know, since the Ming dynasty, he would say. And, you know, he was a great believer in expanding the scope of acupuncture. And he was a living proof that it worked, too, of course, watching his cases. Well, and he also would take more time with people. It takes time to palpate. You know, he would say that the reason he started palpating is because the tricks or the points or the secret points or the extra points or the magic points that teachers had told him or other books would would show him didn't work all the time. And so what do you do when all the tricks and all the magic things you learn in your classes or, or whatever you're doing don't work? You've got to have something to fall back on. And that was where palpation began. And that was probably the 1970s where he really got into distal palpation below the elbows and knees. And then from that started to kind of collect patterns in his mind of, you know, when you start to find changes in this area on the lung channel, it might be this type of diagnosis. And really what it was doing was, again, back to kind of a way of seeing. And I'm using the word seeing kind of broadly, not just with your eyes, but with your mind. Dr. Wong's way of seeing involved this dialogue with his hands and a dialogue with his mind and the very careful interplay of questioning during patient interviews, like you said, slowing down. But the things he felt on the channels would totally inform the questions he was asking. And so for those you know listening who are interested in this kind of work, the key is that the palpation doesn't have to be some separate thing that you do that adds another 20 minutes to your treatment. What it is instead is very early while you're talking to patients, get them lying down as quickly as you can, 
and just start palpating the channels below the elbows and knees while you're asking them how their week went. And then you find something on the stomach channel and you ask about, you know, how's their digestion? Or you find something on the Sanjiao channel and you check the trapezius muscle up above. This can be musculoskeletal. This can be internal heart channel. I'll ask about dreams. So watching Dr. Wong, he's like Merv Griffin, you know, he's like interviewing a guy, you know, every patient, he would have them sit back. He, in his case, they wouldn't be lying on tables. He had that great big desk he'd have with a little thin, like tissue paper papers that they'd always write on prescriptions in China, surrounded by, you know, the acupuncture needles, you know, cotton balls. And, 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 you know, he'd have everything there at his desk and the patient would be sitting there and he'd be kind of kicked back interviewing them, and then reaching forward and palpating while asking questions. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yeah, you know, it's so different. So often we are thinking, oh, we have to get through this, like, set of 10 questions or whatever. And we do that as if it was disconnected from the rest of what we're doing in a way, right? We're just asking these questions. But as, as you say, Dr. Wong... He'd have these conversations, but he was informed by what was happening under his hands. He was really attentive. It seemed to me that what he felt is often what would guide the questioning. I think some people who've been interested in Dr. Wong's work miss that point in that, you know, I'm a very heady person. I love being in my head. I love theories and thinking. And so it, 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 it's my own weakness as well, and that you get really interested in the fantastic theoretical clarifications he makes and the six-channel descriptions and the nature of the points, and then you kind of skip over the information on palpation. And without that, you're not getting it. You know, it's come to me slowly that that's a crucial part of this, but you're exactly right. It is, it is this idea that as you're palpating a channel, and the more channels you palpate, begins to remind you of more and more patients to where it's in your subconscious almost that you start to perceive patterns in the channels from palpating more and more people. You know, it, it's hard to explain this, but you kind of enter into the meta patterns of the population you treat by palpating the channel. It's like, oh, this reminds me of that person and that person and that person. And you even this is even intuitive. You know, it's not you're doing it. Well, it's like we're building up this vocabulary, a palpatory vocabulary. Yeah. And patterns. Yeah. yeah. Seeing patterns in the population. One of the other things that I found with this is that there are certain points. I've gotten to know certain points so intimately. For example, lung six. I don't know what it is about lung six, but me and lung six, we're really tight these days. I love lung six. Yeah. And it's one of those points, when I go and palpate it, it number one, it's easy to find. At least for me, it's easy to find. And that thing is all over the place. 
You mean it moves up and down the channel a bit? It moves up and down the channel by a couple of few sun yeah. if you're paying attention. Yeah. And that's lung six. And it and it can be used for so many different things. But again, if I hadn't felt the changes in the channel, I wouldn't know to put my attention there and see how does this play with everything else going on with this patient. Well, if you don't mind just taking a small diversion, I'm interested. Tell me what you perceive as the personality of lung six. What are the types of things you you notice when you find changes there? What is it you think about when you, you see stuff there? How do you use it? First of all, I want to talk about what I feel under my hands. So there's often an area that feels like a nodule or it's kind of gummy or it's like striated in some way. Those are three different things that are going on. Obviously, it's useful for respiratory issues. That's plain old textbook acupuncture, right? I see it useful in a lot of digestive issues, especially having to do with the large intestine you know, via that yin-yang correspondence. And I find it useful for emotional issues that have to do with grief, that have to do with uh, certain issues of self-esteem and boundary. It often shows up in patients who have asthma or, or some kind of breathing issue, could be allergies, and an issue with a parent where they're never good enough. Mm. Dr. Wong loved to get into point categories, cleft point, place things get stuck in the channel. And yeah, something in the chest too. So not just lung, but kind of the upper burner stagnation of a variety of psycho-emotional to physical, or the even mouth of the stomach. Dr. Wong also talked about, and I've noticed, especially on the left-hand side, lung six sometimes gets changes in people with GERD, you know, because it's like the, you know, the, the lung channel coming up from the stomach through the mouth of the stomach, and you find stuff right there, too. And you find it more on the left side. A little bit more on the left, yeah. So, but that's, I mean, but what you said about large intestine channel digestive issues, you know, you might remember Dr. Wang loved to say that the large intestine channel is not just the large intestine, but also includes, in his mind, through palpation and treatment, and, you know, his own experience, the area kind of from the stomach up. So the, you know, the esophagus and the upper aspect of the digestive tract from the throat down would have large intestine channel changes too. So, you know, you're saying not, you know, maybe something to do with not opening, not speaking, you know, something stuck in the throat too. And also just inflammations in the throat, tracheitis, those kind of things too. So what you said about striated changes at lung six, those are the ones that are kind of deviating towards the pericardium channel, right? I had not paid attention to that aspect of it. I'll look for it next time I run into it. Yeah. Anyway, so this is the kind of thing that Dr. Wong loved to do as students of his, we would ask questions, just like what you just said. We would, you would say that to Dr. Wong, and sometimes he would say, yeah, yeah, exactly. And other times, he would just say, you could see him say, oh, I don't know, maybe. He was always willing to say maybe, but then maybe six months later, you would hear him having seen a few patients where he noticed what you were saying was valid, and he saw get clinical results. He would weave that into his own way of describing the channels. He was constantly collecting and evolving information like that. And that's the great thing about palpating is points then, like lung six, uh, we don't have to be you know, stuck with what they say in the textbook. When we start finding changes there and paying attention to patterns, we can expand their use. But the, the key is not because, because lung six is a cleft point, it should do this no matter what. It's when you find changes there, then you start to consider what might be happening in that person. 
And it opens up, a, for me, a very personal relationship with the points. It's, I mean, like you, I love the heady stuff and I love the theory and the way it all hangs together is beautiful. But I can't tell you how many times I've needled somebody thinking, hey, this is a great point for them. And then I go check some other things and go, yeah, great idea proven wrong by reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that brings up two of Dr. Wong's favorite quotes. One of his very favorites is we have to use theory to explain reality, not to create reality. <laughs> He'd love that one. And the other one that's very connected to what you're saying right now, and you, I'm sure you've heard him say, use this metaphor, he loves metaphors of all types, is that acupuncture points are like friends. And, you know, you have to get to know friends. And over time, you get to know them better. But also, there are different types of friends we all have in our lives. There's certain friends that he would say, you know, like, they, you both love Italian movies. And if an Italian movie comes in town, you're going to go see it. But that's kind of it. Like when it's not Italian movies, you don't see them so much. And other friends, they're like, they're the people you see every week. Your kids are the same age. You go have dinner together. You might go out and have beer together. You might, uh, you might go gardening together, go hiking together. Like this is the friend who does everything. And so, you know, sometimes I would say, you know, Dr. Wong, you haven't, you, I've never seen you use, you know, that point before. I've never seen you use small intestine five or something. He's like, ah, you just haven't seen the situation where it's, where it comes up. And that would be like, you haven't, you know, the Italian movie hadn't come in town yet. So you haven't seen that that come up yet. But a point like Lung Five, that was his best friend. Lung Five's the guy you'd have dinner with on the fly and text and say, I'll meet you in five minutes. You know, it's like, and Lung Six is like that for you then. It's like, that's your, one of your jack of all trade points. That's broad. Yeah. Useful in yeah. a lot of we, we, we know each other well. You know each other well. And he loved yeah. that metaphor of points being like friends and, 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 you know, like friends, there's just, you have different types for different things kind of. Yeah, that's great. You talk about Dr. Wong, and, and he was always inquisitive. He was like always studying. He's always putting things together. And as I recall, he had like a massive library. What were some of his favorite go-to books for looking stuff up? That is uh, an interesting question and is related to what I've been trying to do for the last couple of years is researching this concept of clinical reasoning in Chinese medicine. How does an experienced practitioner, you know, approach a patient and how can you educate new students to use the, you know, to get better at clinical reasoning and basically without losing the wisdom of past generations. In that research I've been doing, one of the big questions was exactly that. Okay, Dr. Wong, which texts are formative to you? Which texts have been most important to informing your own clinical reasoning, your own way of seeing in the clinic. And that not just text, but also which teachers were important to you, I would ask him. And, you know, Dr. Wong mentioned he did have some teachers that he found were very influential on him. But as you may remember, Michael, his favorite answer to that question was patients were the best teachers for him. <laughs> yes. And he'd be like, no, it's not. There was no, he had no lineage that he came from of this great teacher. He would, you know, that was an interesting question. Why? why he didn't. And maybe that's related to what you said earlier about acupuncture in Beijing having kind of atrophied a bit. He just didn't have anyone that was crucial to him. He had many teachers who gave him ideas, I'm certain, but there wasn't one. But then textbooks, you know, he was a huge fan of, of course, the Neijing and the Nanjing, uh, the Jiaijing, the systematic classic. But another, a couple other interesting texts, the Zhenzhou Zishengjing, the classic of nourishing life, which is a Ming dynasty text. And that text is actually available for the Chinese medicine database. So you can get that uh, from, you know, Jonathan Shell's Chinese medicine database. 
And it, he has a great version of it in that it has, I'm, I'm pretty sure, the original Chinese and the translation next to each other of that Ming Dynasty text, which other people don't have. It's in a, it's in a few volumes. And what, what Dr. Wong would do in classical texts was kind of triangulate. He would read, you know, one text that would say, oh, this point is is good for treating this and this and this condition, maybe. And then he would read another text that would talk about that condition. And then from that, he would kind of triangulate, all right, if this text is saying that headaches can be coming from a lack of clear yang coming from the middle burner, and then certain times people use Ren 12 for headaches, then Ren 12 has this function of moving upwards and bringing clear yang to the head. And so he would triangulate multiple texts in a way of getting at the physiology, the physiological effects of certain points. And the Zisheng Jing was one of those he would use to triangulate. I think that text has lots of discussions of, of this point can be used for this condition. And he would compare that with other texts to try to triangulate the, the function of points. Another really interesting text that I just got from him just a few months before he died that he's like, this is another text that was very influential on me. And it's interesting. I have not, I'm just beginning to look at it uh, recently, and this one isn't translated yet, but it's a, a Qing dynasty text by Tang Zhonghai. And Tang Zhonghai uh, was the originator of the concept of qi hua, qi transformation. And we think of qi hua as being some classical concept that came from the Neijing or something. Qi hua, it actually really originated more in the late 1800s or 1900s as uh, Chinese medicine interfaced with the idea of steam engines. And so Qihua first came up in the idea of creating steam-powered engines, and then it has influenced Chinese medicine. So there, there, you know, there isn't this concept classically, although we often use it in describing classical physiology. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting. It's like here in the modern time, we look at our brains and we think computers. You know, we look at our body and our joints and we think, oh, a machine with levers and pulleys, and it, it it's. It's fascinating how whatever the sort of technology of the time is, it becomes part of the metaphor of, of who we are as beings. Yeah. Of course, then that points to the great difficulty many of us have perceiving what the heck the classics are talking about because the metaphors they're using are drawn from a place and a time and a culture and a technology that is gone. I mean, forget foreigners and modern Chinese people have the same issues with these classical texts. And so... It is, it is a real challenge for us to try to get back into that way of seeing as much as we can and then bring it forward, too, because we can't live in that way at this time, for better or for worse. So, you know, how do you create a bridge between the way of seeing that existed then and the way of living that we have now that still gets clinical results? And that was the other thing about what was really important to Dr. Wong was not just going through these classical texts and finding really cool ideas, because it's this young Jing there's these crazy discussions about like, you know, hitting yourself in the back with a piece of wood to remove a ghost from your upper arm. You know, maybe it would work, but maybe it just knocked the shoulder back into position or something. But, you know, there's all these things that that maybe aren't really clinically effective. So what he would do is like mine the classics, go through the classics and, you know, try to as much as possible, see really what they meant and then bring it forward. And if it didn't work clinically, then set it aside. If it did work clinically then he would weave it into this thing that he eventually started to call Jing Luo Yi Xue, you know, which I translated as applied channel theory. But it was, you know, if you translate that directly, applied channel theory is not perfect, as you can hear. 
Jing Luo is the channels, and Yi Xue, the study of medicine. So the medical application of the channels, and that's why I kind of translated it as applied channel theory. But applied is the word. In other words, if it didn't work clinically, he would talk about it sometimes, but he would set it aside and not weave it in. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free drop ship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Yeah, well, this is where that triangulation thing that he would do would come in so helpfully because he'd look at things from different angles. You know, one of the things I remember him talking about, and this was a real eye opener for me because, you know, back then I'm thinking, oh man, if I could just understand the classics in this old stuff, I, you know, I'd really have it down. And, and he said, you know, there's a lot of ideas that have come and gone in Chinese medicine and some of them are pretty good and some of them were pretty squirrely and, you know, you'll still read about them because the Chinese are cultural pack rats. They're not going to throw anything away but they'll just stop using it. It'll be part of the history, but it's like, oh, it's up here on a dusty shelf because, yeah, that that was goofy. No one uses it. And so to be able to ascertain what actually is helpful and what actually and, and, and what is not is really, really important. Don't believe it just because you read it in an old book. Right. It isn't, isn't that a lesson for those of us trying to study this medicine in the 21st century and a difficulty because... That's the really exciting thing about practicing Chinese medicine now, isn't it? That, that we're finally getting people outside of China who have decades of clinical experience. And we're really coming into our own now. And I don't think we have to have this insecurity. It's just if it starts to work. But we also have to be open to evolving and changing and not be dogmatic about, yeah, it's in an old book. It has to be, quote, true. It's the real dilemma for us. But I think we're coming through that in the last decade, especially the Chinese medicine is achieving some sort of, uh, not maybe maturity, but a little more sophistication outside of China and in, you know, non-Chinese texts and, and that kind of thing as well. And that was another big influence on Dr. Wang, by the way, another type of triangulation that happened with him. The very last week I saw Dr. Wang, this was just a few, you know, in last August when I was there in Beijing with him, you know, in, in his last month, he was, uh, you know, Jonathan Chang, another of Dr. Wang's apprentices and I went to visit him. He, he'd not been well, but he sat up in his bed and his voice was strong. And he looked at Jonathan and I and he said, look, I want to say I want to say something from my heart. And there were a couple things. The, the, I think one of the main things he was trying to say in that in that visit was that what we're trying to do and what he's you know calling applied channel theory 
is as much as we can get back into the minds of the people who were writing you know, the formative text of Chinese medicine, not just in the Han Dynasty, but in the, you know, the first thousand years of Chinese medical history and try to see what they were saying and try to practice and try to uh, perceive our patients in that way first. Doesn't mean we have to only live that way and then, then take that and evolve it in the modern era. But he was saying that, you know, a lot of modern research is, you know, what are the channels? Are we looking at fascia? Are we looking at electroconduction system or what were they, what were those things called from Korea? The bond tubules or something like that? Uh, something like that. Yeah. I, I don't remember the name. Yeah. He's like, that stuff is really interesting, but, but again, does it improve our clinical effects? He said, you know, we should take seriously the stuff that's in there because if we can perceive in the way they do, we may not need to reinvent the wheel. And, and you know, I'm paraphrasing. I, I translated more of exactly what he said in a, in, a, in a small memorial that we wrote for the Journal of Chinese Medicine. That, that, that I can give that to you to put on this podcast. But the other thing he said, and this is more connected to what we were just talking about, and it was almost an aside, but it, but it was in that same conversation, was that part of what really got him into looking at the classics was one of the very first trips he took outside of China. He, I think because he was recognized as a pretty good teacher early on, was sent by the Chinese government in like 1976 to Greece to teach some doctors there acupuncture. And he spent like three months in Greece. By the way, at that time, TCM, as we know it, didn't even exist yet. It was being developed. But he was teaching from the kind of textbook mainland Chinese stuff. And they were kind of interested about, you know, nerve conduction you know, theories about acupuncture and that kind of thing. And then one day he's like, kind of, I'm sick of this. I'm going to just talk about some stuff from the Nanjing. And he, you know, he gave a, an afternoon lecture on some different difficulties from the Nanjing. And all the doctors came up afterwards, like, this is what we want to hear. This is the stuff we're really interested in. And he, and this was, you know, again, him telling me this in the, the last weeks before he passed, this was a major influence on me and that it started to stimulate my own thinking back in this direction. So, you know, Dr. Wang, while having his mind in the classics and sleeping on this little cot in this room full of books, which I think you saw as well, Michael. Yeah, he was surrounded by his library. And he'd get up at two in the morning. He was such a nerd and read and get up and think and drink tea, you know, and like write things down. And be like, oh, I got to write that down. But also <laughs> he was super influenced by the, the foreign students who, that he taught and those who came to China to study with him. And it became this kind of circuit of being influenced by the West as well. And that, I mean, he was straight up about that. He didn't deny that, that the students who came to study with him from outside of China got him going and got him interested. So, you know, we had this apprenticeship ceremony, I don't know, about six, seven years ago. The assistant, I think I might have this wrong, but the assistant uh, minister of health for the Department of Health in Beijing got up and spoke. And he's like, look, we in China need to be careful because a guy, look at the, you know, look at these apprentices. You know, there are a lot of them are you know, not from China. We have to watch out because if we're not careful, you know, Chinese students are going to have to go abroad to study Chinese medicine. And this, again, connects to what I was what I was just saying is that we need to now be willing to step up outside of China and and have some confidence in the training we have, the clinical experience we have, because uh, we don't have to have this insecurity. And that even includes to some degree fluency in the Chinese language. I, I mean, I think we need to be very aware of core concepts in Chinese medicine and really look at single characters and as much as we can or, or listen to teachers who know the language. But on the other hand, we really need to learn from our patients and get our own clinical footing too. And this circular influence from the West was a big, big part of what Dr. Wang had to say in his last 
some of his last discussions with me. So much of his influence and so much of what he learned and what he had to teach was by working in these circles. Yeah. You know, and one of the things about Chinese medicine for me, I mean, initially, early on, I remember being in acupuncture school, and one of the absolutely frustrating things about it was all this circular thinking that was going on, which is very hard for a Westerner to do, right? Because we're, we're looking for cause and effect, and there's a straight line, and you know, we, we know that in China, the straight line is not the shortest distance between two points, right? Things are very circular. And, and it occurs to me, too, and I've been at this almost 20 years now, and I feel like it's finally sinking in that when I think about the work that I do, without bringing in my Western mind, without bringing in, you know, science or functional medicine or, you know, other things that I've, you know looked at because it's caught my attention. But when I really hang with the Chinese thought and the Chinese ways of looking at things, it it's like speaking a foreign language to the body. I mean, it's really like speaking a whole different language. Yeah. yeah. And if you're actually, you got your hands on people and you're thinking and you're feeling the channels as something alive and present and communicative... It's a whole different experience than coming up with this, I've got this idea in my head about these things that, well, maybe they exist, maybe they don't. And that's, yeah, again, palpation is a way to get to that place, right? I mean, you may not, the it first really time you palpate, is. you're not going to have it, you're not going to get it. But the more you do it, this what you just said, it's gradual accumulation. And that was Dr. Wong's, you might, you know, he would talk about the function of the channels in the body. And one of the major ways that he described the way the channels are functioning is they're irrigating. They're gently like taking the roots of the, of the structures of the body and gently bringing fluids to them and very slowly with rhythm irrigating. And that, that was also the way he taught, you know, he would irrigate his students. He wouldn't, he wouldn't download all the information in a two day seminar, you know, for everything. It would be like, you know, my metaphor was almost like his way of teaching was like a painter who'd work over here for a little while and get the tree, the details of the leaves of the tree. And then the next week he'd be up on the sky, like painting the clouds. And slowly over time, a picture would emerge. And I think what you just described, that way of seeing that you're that you, that happens on our good days, not every day, of course, I wish, mm -hmm. but on the good days where the channels are there and they are alive to you. You get better and better at that slowly. And again, you just got to start palpating and being okay with the fact that it may, it's not going to be like that. You're not going to be like, oh, I got it. I mean, certain musculoskeletal conditions, maybe you can find changes easily. But, but that, that deeper level of, of feeling the channels and just being with them in the present is, is a slow motion accumulation. For those listeners who might be new to this and thinking they'd like to, well, pun intended, try their hand at it, other than reading your book... What would be some ways to begin incorporating palpation in a in a way that they can start to get this information? They can start to build their own relationship with the channels and the points. You know, I, I have been traveling around trying to teach Dr. Wong's way of seeing and palpating now for over 10 years. And one of the things I've noticed, and at first I didn't notice this, but as I've been teaching more is... It's the opposite of what I just described, Dr. Wong's way of teaching, right, with this slow accumulation. You know, I have to go in in two or three days, try to teach people something that they can come away with. And it's not a gradual accumulation. And I 
tend to probably download too much information on people, overwhelm them. They think this is really cool. They get really excited about it and then maybe even do it for a while and then quit because it's too much to integrate all at once. And because that of that problem in teaching that I've noticed, I've come up with this advice. And if you're interested in this way of doing things, the best way to start is to simply get patients to lie down a little more quickly than you normally do instead of sitting in a chair talking to them. And then while you ask them about their week, run your medial thumb along all of the channels from the wrist and ankles up towards the knees while talking to them. That's it. Just start palpating. Don't try to integrate all of the chi transformation concepts Dr. Wong describes. Don't even necessarily uh, use the palpation for your diagnosis at first. Just think of what you're doing is massaging the channels to open them up a bit before you needle. That's it. You're just, and even tell the patient, you're just, your, your attitude is I'm massaging the channels to open them up before I treat not even using it as diagnosis at first. Uh, because one of the main ideas that comes from Dr. Wong's thinking, and this is more than we have time probably to get into, is that as you're going along the channels, you don't necessarily just treat everything you find. That's a big subject, but you're not just looking for points to needle. This is not looking for assure points. You're, massage, you're going along the channels as part of diagnosis before you've even figured out what you're gonna do. But the way to begin to get towards that is to think of it as dredging the channels, opening them up, feeling the spaces of the channels better to help your point location, and then maybe gradually integrating in this diagnosis. Because one day you'll be palpating and be like, whoa, that's interesting. That I have not felt on people. And those moments add up over time and become part of your diagnosis. But don't try to do it all at once. And people love having their arms and legs massaged. You're not going to, I mean, except for some people with fibromyalgia or something where you have to go really light. But People love massage and you can do it while talking. That's, that's the advice I've come up with so far. Yeah, I, I think it's really good advice. So often we're looking to get some weekend mastery. You know, we want to learn something. We're, we're going to go back to clinic. And it's like, I'm going to rock this stuff because I learned it this weekend. But it, it certainly doesn't take a weekend and it doesn't take a couple of weeks. And in my experience, it rarely takes a few months. It takes seasons. I love your way of describing it as a, a process of irrigation. You know, it's the slow, gentle, like you know, like a spring rain that uh, over time nourishes. And as you said, circular, like Dr. Wong would say, you know, when in the 1950s, when he first was reading the Neijing, he's like, what in the heck is it talking about? It doesn't make any sense. And then he'd read it again six years later and be like, ah, this is what the Neijing means. And then read it eight years later and be like, I had no idea what it meant. It means this. And so palpation is a similar thing in that you, you get it at one level, and the longer you do it, the more you get out of it. It's not, you don't reach an end with this. It just takes on different levels and meanings over time. You start to feel more and more. Part of it is really physical. I think the longer you palpate, your brain literally, you know, innervates your thumb more so that you actually can start to feel, I mean, it's a physical change that happens in your thumb over time that takes a little time to gain the sensitivity as well. Yeah, some neuroplasticity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jason, we could go on for a long time, but yeah. I've got to go see some patients here in a little bit. All right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make a living. Geological doesn't pay, but you could probably put some kind of plug to have people give you a little GoFundMe or something. Help well, you. Now, actually, I've got some sponsorship that helps with that. So that's that's kind of a nice thing. Thank you, sponsors. Thanks to Amazon. They're a big sponsor. Actually, I've got two different sponsors for the show these days. 
there's supply houses out there that are happy to make sure that our colleagues have this stuff to listen to. So I've got I've got a little part-time job here as a podcast host, which is kind of funny because I'm basically a shy guy and yet I got a podcast show. Go figure. Well, I really, really appreciate you doing this. And I was, you know, reading your introduction to Geological on their website. In a way, it's what we're talking about today is getting into the way of seeing and trying to, you know, educate people in this conversational way about Chinese medicine from different angles. And this is really, you know, important to sample the broad garden of Chinese medicine in the 21st century that, that exists for, for students and other listeners. So I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Well, it, it's my pleasure. You know, one of the things I found over the years is, at least for me, my clinical work is, uh, you know, I'm kind of a lone wolf. It's just me and my clinic working. When I lived in Seattle, I'd often hang with you or Daniel, you know, a couple other friends. And, you know, we'd talk cases. we just talk shop and get all geeky. But, you know, here in the Midwest, it's it, I'm a bit more isolated. So doing the podcast was partly a way of reaching out for myself to be connected to my community. And what I've discovered is there's a lot of acupuncturists that are kind of thirsty to hear the voices of experienced clinical practitioners. Well, I guess as the decades past, you and I might become that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're working on it, right? I guess a good thing to maybe finish with, Michael, is one of Dr. Wong's favorite quotes, Guren Bupian woman. Remember that one? <laughs> Hard to translate perfectly into English without using language we don't want to use, but the classical physicians aren't kidding us. You know, a lot of times the issue is just figuring out what the heck they're talking about. Yeah, that's a great phrase. That's a good one to close with. <laughs> yeah, Guren Bupian woman. <laughs> I look forward to another conversation sometime soon. I get up to Seattle every now and then. All right. Look me up. We'll have tea. Let's do. All right. All right. Hey, before you take off today, I just wanted to remind you that I'd love to have your questions for other shows. You have a question that you'd like to have on the show, have my guests noodle over it, please go to the website geological.com look for that red button that says talk to me leave me a message thanks as always for listening if you liked this conversation if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight share the episode with your friends if you want to support geological there's just one way to do that it's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.